This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Charles, Charles Upton, it's a pleasure to be interviewing you today here in Barichara, Colombia. Great to be here with you, Kathy. <laughs> and uh, I've been looking forward to being able to interview you and ask you, um, well, what what actually first brought you to Barichara? What was the uh, what was your your goal for arriving here? Well. Um, I guess taking a step back, I I got connected with Joe uh, during the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, when I read his book. Uh-huh. I somehow found a PDF while I was in Portugal of uh, of his book, and I read it um, quite quickly and was super impressed. Mm. Uh, and I think I logged on to the Earth Regenerator Network that day and from my tiny little concrete box in Evora, Portugal, I started to engage with the network and which has then led me here. So um, yeah, here I am in Barichara, Colombia. And you bring with you quite an impressive package of skills, I must say. The fact that you have studied so water in so many different regions of the world I know you've been in Australia, you've been in the Middle East, you've been in um, um, desert areas as well as moist areas and uh, India. So would you like to say a word or two about your your background with water? Sure. I, I um, In a previous life, I was sort of a, a climbing bum, if you will, and spent a lot of time traveling around, going to different rocks, and uh, that took me to uh, Wadi Rum in southern Jordan on the Saudi Arabian border uh, where I spent quite a bit of time with uh, different um, Bedouin people and they were the ones that sort of got me fascinated at first about water. So just being deep, deep in the desert uh, with these guys being totally dependent on their knowledge of where there was a puddle in a certain Wadi behind a certain rock and uh, very aware that if that puddle wasn't there, we were all going to be in very big trouble. So this is sort of what got me started with a fascination about water and its importance for life, all life on our planet needing water. And then also um, my undergraduate degree was in international relations. So uh, water, some people say, is the root of all conflict in the world. So I found that quite fascinating. Um, and there are also a number of very good examples of where water can be used to cooperate with. So uh, that's where I sort of got fascinated at first, and uh, then went back to the U.S. and um, started looking for work in water. I ended up taking a job with the Watershed Management Group, which was inspired by Brad Lancaster in Tucson, 
And so I got to spend, I spent about a year down in Tucson working directly with Brad um, and a number of these uh, WMG projects, uh, green infrastructure in the city of Tucson, as well as a couple helping support some of their international uh, projects as well. So that was really my, my introduction into water. And from there, um, decided that I, I, I was really into this. It was fascinating to me and that I should go back to school and study it. So talking to some of the people in Arizona, um, they said, if you want to study water in the U.S., you should come to the water center at the U of A. But if you're really serious, you should go to Australia because they've been, uh, they have water management as an academic program has been, uh, it's been a program there for, I think since the forties or so longer than anywhere else in the world. I already sort of knew I was fascinated in the, the, the dry land aspect of water. So places that don't have enough water sort of compared to, uh, the flip side of water management, which you would probably go to the Netherlands where they have too much water. So it's, it's sort of uh, two sides of the coin, um, if you will. So that's how I ended up in, Aus in Australia. Um, studied uh, water at the International Water Center at the University of Queensland there. Um, and from there, uh, I, was, I went to India for my final project, for my research, and really looking at uh, traditional water systems in the Rajasthan, in the Thar, Thar Desert of Rajasthan. Um, so I stayed in, in Jaisalmer. And um, yeah, was really looking at issues around decentralized water systems, traditional decentralized water systems, and the new newer centralized water pipeline coming down uh, from the Himalayas and issues around equity as far as they, these two different styles of water management. Wow. I was very impressed when I heard about the amazing work that some very poor villagers had done in India to um, to create the earthworks that would allow their um, them to cultivate crops year-round, even during the very dry season. I guess you're familiar with that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of the traditional knowledge that is held in Rajasthan. Uh, so 1948, um, with partition, uh, they started building this centralized pipeline, bringing water uh, down from the Himalayas through the Punjab. And they, they were essentially saying, this is modernity, so just forget your traditional systems. This is the future. We've got, we're going to bring tapped water. You know, We're going to have a faucet in every house and these sort of things. And so for quite a while, uh, this was the way the project was going, and people were forgetting their traditional systems. Mm. Uh, eventually, they sort of realized that this water wasn't reliable, the quality wasn't always good, and it didn't always work. And there were still some older people that remembered these older systems. So it really started with this grassroots, um, just sort of going out, digging these talabs, which is like a, a lake reservoir, and it spread from there. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the things that I was very interested to look at when I was there. Really, one of my, my questions of why Rajasthan was fascinating to me, it's the most densely populated uh, desert in the world for the amount of rainfall by a significant amount. So 
that's just sort of right off the bat really interesting it's like how how did they do it you know how do they have you know for quite a long time you know thousands of years they've had a lot of people living in this desert whereas other deserts in the world that are similar have very few people so um what's going on there that's different and Rajendra Singh and the Czech Dams movement? Yeah, so that that movement when I was there was very much based in a in a sort of a, a Gandhian ethic. Um, it's quite a it, they me as a white outsider uh, wasn't really able to interface with them because they did all their work in Hindi, and this is quite a strong feeling at the time. They've since. I think like um, they've mellowed their stance a bit, um, but at the time there was a very strong Hindu uh, component to this, and uh, me as an outsider wasn't really appropriate. I felt for me to engage uh, with them, but uh, but yeah, these were the systems that I was looking at. Yeah, and they've now sort of reclaimed this traditional knowledge, and now that it's working, I think are quite proud of it and excited to share it with the rest of the world. That's beautiful. And so while you've been here in Barichara, um, how have you been sharing your knowledge and your gifts with local people? Well, um, when I first arrived here, went on uh, quite a few different site visits and visited um, different fincas all over the territory, got to meet uh, a number of people here and just starting to get a feel for the land. Um, starting to people asking me all sorts of different questions. So giving some sort of short consultations. Um, last week, I uh, gave a presentation to about 30 people or so up at Margarita's house. Uh, and just sort of talking about some of the work that I've done in different places and different types of water management strategies and, um, you know, what could be applied here. So uh, we've since been doing uh, weekly work out on Orien del Agua, where we were this morning, uh, doing some digging and planting and moving some rocks in the rain, um, as well as on some other properties. And then we've got a few more sites planning, planning we're working on. So uh, next week, we're going to start doing some more work. But uh, yeah, so that's sort of, I think, the, the rough synopsis. So when you do uh, a consult with an individual landowner or on a farm, are you typically talking about um, strategies to have more water stored um, as opposed to um, landscape features, or how does that go? Well, I like to approach it as um, there's supply and demand, so we can look at both. And there's ways that we can reduce the amount of water that's needed, that reducing that demand. And there are ways that we can increase the supply. And really what we need is for those two things to balance out. And we have different strategies that might be appropriate in different contexts. So rainwater harvesting is a great way to augment supply. So you know, using a, a clean catchment or roof and then holding that water in a tank is a really great way to have more water supply. Um, something like a, uh, a gray water system where you're using your water from inside the house and then putting it outside for irrigation 
is a nice way to reduce your need for uh, your demand for irrigation water, for example, um, using efficient appliances, efficient irrigation systems is another way we can reduce the amount of water that's demanded. Um, Are you seeing a, um, any use of drip irrigation here, or is this appropriate for this climate? I haven't seen very much um, in the way of drip irrigation, mostly because I think there's a, the dry season is, in my, in my brain, relatively short compared to a lot of the places that I work in. So uh, before coming to Barichara, I was working down in the Mojave Desert um, with two different sites down there. And compared to, you know, with uh, Barichara, Colombia, compared to the Mojave Desert, it's incredibly lush here. The dry seasons are shorter, you know, a few months um, compared to really sort of 11 months out of the year in the Mojave. And you're sort of working off of, you know, one or two big rain events, especially on one of the sites that I'm working at. They oftentimes don't get any precipitation for an entire year. And they're sort of on a five-year cycle where every five years they get a really big storm. That's incredible that people can survive with so little precipitation. Would you like to give a little a synopsis of how they do it, how they grow food? Well, in that area, they're really surviving because they have an aqueduct. So they're bringing in water from the outside, right? So this is not a local resource, as you will. And without that centralized water infrastructure system, you wouldn't have people surviving there. Um, so that's very much... Uh, dependent on this large engineering project. Um, what we're trying to do on that site specifically is develop very efficient systems so that we're not wasting any water and that any water that we put in the landscape is put to a good use. Um, and we're going to be growing uh, mesquite and dates down there, which are two appropriate crops for that area. Um, but it's quite a difficult site. Uh, not only very hot in the summer, but also incredibly cold in the winter. So uh, you get the extremes plus high winds. It's it's tough. Um, Barichara feels like a paradise in comparison. I hear that. So um, when you when you look at Barichara, a place where we really, we really do have fairly good rainfall, but a lot of it is just not harvested at all. Um, what, what can you imagine, even just for the town of Barichara, the Pueblo of Barichara itself, how, how a better job could be done to harvest this water? Sure. I mean, one of the first things that I was looking at when I arrived here is how many gutters are on the roofs. So just walking down the street and they've got beautiful red tiled roofs um, and not too many gutters. Uh, there are some gutters, but uh, gutters are one of these key features that we want if we're going to harvest that water off the roof and put it into a tank. So just immediately seeing that there weren't terribly that many gutters um, gave me the idea that they weren't taking advantage of that water when it came on the roof. Um, also having been out here in the rain and seeing what happens to the streets uh, is quite incredible. Uh, the streets here are cobblestone with quite high curbs, and they just turn into rivers. 
um, there's sort of a downpour and the water flows right down the street. It has nowhere else to go. It has no way to infiltrate into the soil. Um, very, very limited on storm drains or any sort of, you know, infrastructure to, to, to move it away. And it, it, it seems to create quite a problem actually in the road that, uh, it's, yeah, it's just channeling off and going down, running out of town essentially and not sticking around. So, you know, we like to say, slow it, spread it, sink it. And it's definitely not happening on those streets. So you'd like to see uh, some more gutters and obviously rain barrels attached uh, with pipes. And it doesn't seem as though that's very likely to happen given, given the nature of the architecture here. Well, I don't know. The other day I saw a guy that was putting up gutters and then he was running the pipe inside and uh, the most of the buildings here uh, rammed earth construction which is actually quite easy to put pipes through um, so I, I don't think that's a, an enormous limitation definitely finding the space for uh, those tanks um, and sizing them appropriately um, is, is, a, is a challenge and that's going to be context specific for each house um, yeah, so I, I, I think there's a lot more that could be done on that sort of front. Um, and then also having good examples of how to use that water. So something else I've seen here is people might have a rainwater system and they're getting the water from their roof into the tank, but then they don't have a good way to then use that water. They don't have a pump or some way to set up, so then that, that tank just stays full and isn't used. So having some good examples, um, finding some cheap, low-cost pumps that could then help move that water um, and, and put it inside or use it for irrigation. Um, yeah, so water sitting in a tank doesn't do anything unless you use it, right? Yeah, and looking at the other end of things, um, I'm sure you're well aware that in probably almost all of South America, Untreated sewage goes straight into rivers. What what would you say? What would you say about that? It's definitely a problem. And it's quite disgusting. <laughs> and you go down to the river, it is untreated sewage. Um, so there's the, there's definitely a big negative impact there. Um, how we would generally deal with this in you know the United States or in Europe somewhere like that, we have a a, a centralized wastewater treatment plant. Um, here in Colombia, there doesn't seem to be the accountability or trust in the government to provide those sort of services. So they're not really demanded. So, uh, I think the way forward would be probably empowering people to clean their own waste with, through various means. Um, so out at the Yupis where I'm staying at the moment, they have a really beautiful, uh, biological filter with a bunch of reeds and everything and they put all their waste through there and then all this all the nutrients are taken up by the plants and they have to go in there and cut them down every so often but we, they have a really beautiful you know biological living treatment plant for their for their small property uh, another way might be a biogas digester which i know you are quite an expert in um, and i can learn a lot from you but I really think the way forward is helping to empower people to, to take control themselves. Because I know, having spoken to people here, 
they they don't they don't like that their sewage goes into the river, you know. But there's not um, a system in place to with, with the government political system. There's just not enough trust or faith that they would be able to do it. So I think helping people do it on their own would be the way forward here. So in the best of all possible worlds, what would you imagine would be the, the beautiful um, treatment facility that the people here would, would design? Because if only one person is going to try to do a composting toilet, for example, there's not that much incentive because everybody else's poop is still going in the river. Yeah, so it, there needs to be some kind of scale, I guess. Um, and it would probably be not, you know, building one treatment plant for the whole town, but then sort of going block by block or something like this, like taking small areas where, um, I mean, this town is incredible in that it's all sort of sloped on a hill, right? So you have a very much like the top of town and the bottom of town. Uh, so sort of uh, approaching it that way where we could figure out you know, these, this group of houses could then go into one centralized facility and then that could be managed by those, those people. So uh, not every single house might need their own processing system, um, but then you could have a, a, a larger one that would take care of a few houses. And then that maintenance and all that sort of thing would be shared by those houses. Right. Okay, well, do you have any other topics that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up our interview? Sure. I, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen here uh, is just sort of exploring the landscape and seeing the different nacimientos mm. that are out in the countryside. Um, which means springs for those who don't which speak are, Spanish. Which are springs. Um um, a lot of these are quite elaborate um, and were used not terribly long ago. Uh, some of them have gone dry and other ones are just sort of out, out of repair. Uh, I guess I really see um, something similar to the traditional systems in Rajasthan where they were told to, to forget their traditional systems and here's modernity, and we're going to give you this piped water, and so just forget it. Um, I think there's a huge potential to sort of revitalize these springs. It's a definitely a different context than Rajasthan. And really, I think the way forward to revitalizing these nacimientos is reforesting the area. So understanding how recent a lot of these uh, nacimientos have dried up, uh, it's quite recent memory for a lot of these people here. Um, and the deforestation is also relatively recent. You know, within 50, 60 years, I believe, is when they came in and really made a big push for tobacco. And so this area since then has lost a lot of its trees, lost a lot of its small water cycle, uh, lost a lot of this organic material that can then hold this water, infiltrate it into the ground, which is then coming back up in these nacimientos. So I think there's a uh, really exciting potential there to reforest in a really conscious way. And then also the, the, the nice sort of 
side effect of this reforestation could be that these nacimientos are starting to flow again. Um, and then hopefully that the people would be um, proud of that and take some pride in their own systems. So I think that's sort of another piece that's been forgotten. I've seen quite a few that have been just used as uh, for garbage and this sort of thing. So um, developing that respect, rebuilding that respect for the, for the water, for the forests, for these living systems, I think is, um, would be a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. That is beautiful. And so the land called Las Albercas here, um, what do you imagine could happen within a, a short span of years? Do you think that a river could come back? Um, yeah, possibly, quite possibly. So Las Albercas is a very exciting property. Um, the property itself is very nice and has a huge potential for where we could be doing a lot of work to infiltrate water and reforest. But the, the bigger picture there is there's already really good buy-in from surrounding landowners. So sort of working at this watershed scale, um, El Tatumo, which is above Las Albercas, is in process. I was out there yesterday. They're planting loads of trees and they're starting to work on the creek there. And, is that Manuela's land? And that's Manuela's, yeah. Mm, great. Yeah, so just, and then the Yupis are next door to that. So um, there are a number of properties in this immediate area that are all already working on reforestation. And so we can keep working on that reforestation, um, start building some of these Roman arch check dams, um, and then hopefully working from the top of the watershed down, we'll be able to uh, be putting enough water in the ground that it's going to be coming out all year round, even in the dry season. So mm -hmm. one of the nacimientos up at uh, El Tatumo is one of the biggest ones that I've seen. It's also one of the drier ones I've seen, considering that we're here in the rainy season. Um, and this had uh, water in it um, within people's memory, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, this was in use, and and obviously there were steps going down into this pool, and you could see the steps still, and this sort of thing. Um, an important place for the community, and um, it'd be really powerful and amazing to revitalize that, and I think could be an example for other areas in the territory. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Kathy.